Tonight we'll be looking in the Belgian Confession or Article 29. I invite you to turn there in the back of your hymnals to page 866. And we'll be turning in our Bibles tonight to the book of Jude and book of Acts, Jude chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, and, and other uh, passages to, to see where this confession concerning the true church comes from, uh, namely from God's Word. Jude chapter 1, page 1027, toward the back of your Bibles. A question before us tonight, how do, how do we recognize the true church? Aren't all churches true churches? Well, no. True and false churches exist. The true church is the church that diligently and carefully searches the Scriptures to hear from God and then submits to God's Word. The true church sees its role as being caretaker and proclaimer of God's eternal truth. Listen to what Article 29 says as it summarizes the teaching of God's Word concerning the marks of the true church. We believe that we ought to discern diligently and very carefully by the Word of God what is the true church from all sects in the world today for all sects in the world today claim for themselves the name of the church we are not speaking here of the company of hypocrites who are mixed among the good in the church and who nonetheless are not part of it even though they are physically there we are speaking of distinguishing the body and fellowship of the true church from all sects that call themselves the church The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel, makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left, and they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. As for the false church, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God. It does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in His Word. It rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. It bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. It persecutes those who live holy lives according to the will of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. These two churches are easy to recognize and thus to distinguish from each other. We'll be looking at those uh, parts of of that article. Now we want to see where this confession comes from, and that is we turn to God's Word, the book of Jude, one chapter, 
Jude is preparing to speak or to write. He wants to write to those, uh, to his hearers about the common faith that they share, the common uh, salvation that they share, but he recognizes that there's more pressing matters before him. This idea of false teachers and false churches is not new to our day. Listen to what Jude says. This is the Word of God, starting verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There's many things that are evident in the false church. One of them is this, this idea that uh, grace allows us to, to live however we want. And here, Jude seeing some of that, he says there's sensuality being introduced into these, this body of believers, or there's a temptation for that. And he says, be careful what the Word teaches. We'll see some other things that are uh, added uh, to, uh, to those who teach falsely tonight, but that, by way of introduction, by way of entrance into the Word of God, false teachers had come in and were adding and taking away from the truth that had been taught to these uh, to whom Jude is writing. Jude uses that expression, we want you to contend for the faith. Well, that's a shorthand for the speaking of the full counsel of God, the whole Word of God. It's not speaking about the the way we believe to come to faith in Christ, but rather the faith is that deposit that God gives that He wants us to know and to, uh, to obey. The church is the custodian of that truth. The church recognizes that it's the pillar and ground of the truth, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And it's the true church's call to proclaim and instruct using the Word of God, to put deceptions and and lies to flight. This is what the true church does. We live in a, a, a day and age today, we live in an age today where teachers and, and preachers are uh, able to disseminate their message very quickly. Uh, they, can, they don't need to raise money to put up a building to pay rent. They can put out a podcast. And uh, there is uh, a very little effort required for uh, such, a, such an entity to uh, become uh, open to the public. If they're persuasive, they can quickly gain a following, claim to be a church. The writers of our confessions did not envision such a possibility. They were looking at the, the, the church as, uh, uh, as it was visible around them, uh, but they certainly knew about false teachers. Jude knew about false teachers, and they were endangering the people uh, to whom he was writing. He was concerned that they were going to be led astray by some of the additions and subtractions that were uh, being made in that region. It's not true. It's not new, as I've said to, to Jude. Already back in Isaiah, there were those who were, who were acting as, as false teachers, claiming visions and all manner of, of inspiration to, to give new teaching. And what does Isaiah say in chapter 8? He says, this is what you do to the teaching and to the testimony. If these false teachers will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light, they don't see rightly. He warns them already back 
uh, in the days of uh, near captivity and then in captivity that they are to look to the Word of God. So that's really the emphasis I want to begin with, the mark of the true church, this, this picture of looking to the Word of God. The true church searches the Scriptures. That church in Berea that was uh, uh, spoken highly of by Paul, he, he said he spoke of them highly because of what? They, he said they search the Scriptures to see if what I am saying is in keeping with the Word of God. Well, look at Acts chapter 2 with me for a moment as we also uh, see the beginning of the uh, early church. What is identifying of or what identifies the the true church? Listen to what it says in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. These new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. You see, just a few chapters later, chapter 5, they're also exercising discipline. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they were uh, uh, trying to present that the, 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 a lie to the leaders of the church that they had brought all the money that they'd received for the property when indeed they had not, and God dealt very severely with them, striking them down such that people were recognizing that this, uh, this family of God, this body of believers, was not to be joined uh, without uh, thought uh, to the one whom they were worshiping. This is uh, the true church, the true church founded upon the, uh, the teaching of the apostles and prophets. You remember Paul saying in, in the book of Ephesians uh, chapter 2, He calls his readers to be fellow citizens, uh, members of God's household, which is what? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Word of God, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And he is the one upon which the church is built. The true church is recognized by the following marks. This is how the Reformers dealt with it because they they were seeing deformation in the church of that day. They said, well, what do we look for? Some were saying, we'll just leave the church altogether. The church age is over, and we've had teachers in our own tradition, in our own Reformed tradition, saying the age of the church is over. Radio preachers that you're probably familiar with who've said, well, we don't go to church anymore. We just, we just meet in our homes. On this day, of, uh, in the days of the Reformation, there were uh, those leaving the church and saying, well, we're, we can't go to the church. We can't, we can't go there. We're going to, going to just leave the church. But no, Gita de Bray says, we need not, we, we must not, Apart from the true church, which is identified by the pure preaching of the gospel. A church's primary mission is to preach Christ and Him crucified as God's means of salvation for sinners. You want a good book that, that uh, refers to what is the mission of the church? It's that book. It's the book by that title, What is the Mission of the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. He goes through what is that mission? How do we, we, we some years ago we were hearing these terms, be missional and be uh, concerned about justice and all of these things, and, and these things are all part uh, of the Christian life, but the, the focus of the church and what drives and, and, and uh, governs it is that proclamation of the gospel, and that we would not think that we ourselves somehow get closer to God because of those things we do, or, or, or that somehow if we're not doing these things, we're, we're these second-tiered Christians. Rather, the emphasis is upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The true church is preaching the gospel. 
Well, secondly, there's the right administration of the sacraments. The true church administers the sacraments, explaining them in keeping with Christ's teaching, in keeping with what the Scriptures teach. I'm not going to look into that uh, here tonight, but we see that uh, uh, throughout Paul's epistles. And then thirdly, the practice of church discipline. Discipline's never been popular. What person likes to be disciplined? Even the biblical writer says in Hebrews 12, who likes to be disciplined? And yet those who are trained by it, there's a, for them there's a harvest of righteousness and peace. Hebrews 12 and verse 11. We might want to add another mark. I'm not trying to write a new confession per se. But, but what about uh, this for our, our presence today? Being gathered together in person. <laughs> And that, that's something that we, we think about because that is in the Scripture. That was not something that was in the minds of the writer of the Belgian Confession. But there's an importance of meeting together. The writers of our confessions would have had no category for virtual church. Um, now, there's a place for that when one is not able to get here, when it's not able to be here. But these technologies are helpful. But the Scriptures make clear that the church gathers together, Acts chapter 2, and they're fellowshipping, and, and the various parts are all part of the one body, and so the hand doesn't go walk off this way, and the foot doesn't go this way, and, and so on. We gather together, and we, we are serving Christ for the glory of the Father through the work of the Spirit together. Debray summarizes what he's teaching, or what he's what he's trying to say to, uh, to those who would be persecuting the Christians of that day. In short, the true church governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, the ones we've just mentioned, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. Very important there. He says we don't we don't want uh, people to say, "Well, I, I I'm 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 done with the church. I'm not going to to be a part of that any longer." No, indeed, we should seek out the church today. That same uh, teaching from Hebrews 10 is is applicable today uh, to us, and that is we don't forsake the gathering together of believers to hear the word. Well, such a commitment is constantly under attack, under pressure, um, with great changes. When, the, when great changes grip a civilization, uh, there's, there's often a, a desire to just jettison the past and say, well, you know, we've got a completely new and improved way of seeing things. We really, we really were kind of in the dark back then, and, 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 and all of those teachings, they all need to be we just need to get rid of them. We need to move ahead. That's what the progressives will say today. Times of discovery will often bring, yeah, well, eureka in the, in the, in the Greek, right? A, a surprise and astonishment. Wow, we, we, we've not seen that before. There's often an increased confidence in humanity when they say, well, we found this. Look what we found. And, and so if we found this, then certainly we, we're going to find more. And so maybe that, that past teaching and past understanding just needs to be completely uh, done away with. And when man becomes proud in such a way, is the first place he directs his pride is against God, against 
his word, which is to be our foundation. We're created to worship. It's just that after the fall, we've decided we want to worship ourselves and our own thinking. But the word of God has stood since the beginning of time, and it will endure forever. Because it's in the past, it doesn't mean we should discard it. It is foundational to life. The church, which is to be a picture of renewed life, a community in connection with God, recognizes that the Word of God is at the heart of life. When discoveries come, we have to reevaluate things. We have to say, well, what, is that, what does that new discovery uh, say to what we've already known? And at times, there are some theories that we're testing, right? In science, we test theories, and we say, we don't know. We've, we've not observed this phenomena long enough to come with a, to come with a, a, a conclusion. Now, sometimes past theories do give way to new understanding, but God is not a theory, and His Word is not uh, something that, that's antiquated, just like another book uh, along with many other old books. And we say, oh, that was a kind of a quaint way of looking at the world. And it's, it's, it, but it's clearly old-fashioned, and we, we don't think that way anymore. No, it's timeless. In fact, truth, if we're going to have a true understanding of the words we use, we go back to the Word. How does God define those terms and define those relationships, and define who we are and so on. We go back to the Word. At the turn of the 20th century, I want to look just for, think for a few moments with you. There were huge advances in society and medicine and transportation and manufacturing and so many different areas. At the turn of the 20th century, the 1900s, the world was rapidly changing. And at that time, the Word of God was coming under higher criticism from the, the European universities in the late 1800s. And there was so much pressure upon the Word of God that, that maybe, we've, maybe we've given too much authority to the Word. Maybe it isn't, it's, it's to be, we just need to tone it down a little bit. Can we really say the Word is inerrant and it's infallible, that it, that it really is God's Word? And there was a lot of challenge to that. And, and there was this talk of, well, there's a new world dawning. It's like almost like there's this new creation. We need a new uh, book to, to describe what's happening and to define what's taking place. And the battle between the defenders of the truth and the redefiners of the truth arose again. Because we're still in these articles of the Belgian Confession on the church, I'm I'm referring back to Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. I've, I've used that in past articles. I hope you remember that. But if you haven't, well, I did. And uh, so we're still looking at There's a podcast that's come out in the, at the 100th anniversary of the, of the publishing of that book, which has been very uh, enlightening as it explains that environment. And it, and it looks so very much like where we are today, uh, this 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 pride in, in humanity's accomplishment, this idea that we're in a new world. We've, we've got new ways of seeing the world. We're understanding things, that these, uh, that these pillars upon which we've built the world, they're, they're just not as, not as solid as we thought. And so we need to redefine things and, and to think differently. And the, and the Word also needs to be taken with less uh, seriousness. That's what J. Gresham Machen was dealing with. Uh, in the early 20th century. 
to church, the Word of, uh, of God was, was viewed with, uh, with uh, less um, confidence, I guess I would say. In 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a leading liberal preacher, preached a sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Now, I'm not going to go into what that term all encompasses. That's the podcast that you can go listen to and, and learn about it. But basically what, what, what was happening is the, the, this, this uh, pastor of this uh, liberal church was saying, you know, the essentials of the faith, we really, we really have to rethink those and what really is essential. And the liberals were saying that uh, we're not so sure that you have to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. We're not so sure you have to believe the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We're not so sure that the inerrancy of Scripture is something we couldn't maybe just be a little more loose on. And there were many others. The physical resurrection of Jesus. Does that really matter? They said, well, no, wait, don't misunderstand us. We're not saying that, that you can't believe that. We're just saying that the church needs to be a bit broader. We need to open the doors a little bit more, a little wider. And, and people who maybe struggle with these supernatural elements of the faith, uh, maybe we just let them in. Because after all, science is really advancing, and we're learning things that, that say to us, uh, physical resurrection is impossible. And, and this whole idea of substitutionary atonement, what is that really all about? We, we, we have a high view of man. Does, does Jesus really have to, to, to give his own uh, life in the place of us for our uh, salvation, that we might have our sins paid for? That seems a bit, that seems a bit uh, uh, at odds with our view of a, a God who is all love and, and who doesn't have such just standards. So in order to, and this was really the thinking, in order to remain relevant, these liberal churches were, were attacking the very foundation of the Christian faith and attacking the Word of God. Machen stood up and said very clearly, he says, well, the supernatural nature of Christ is the whole point. <laughs> He is like, unlike any other. He is necessary. His, his uh, birth, his conception by, uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit is necessary. His coming as a man is necessary. The fact that he is God is necessary. And he's unique. Yes, I'm not going to argue that. And he says, you can believe whatever you want. He was also very uh, uh, libertarian, but he said, you're not believing the historic Christian faith. Whatever it is you're teaching, it's, it's, it's not what the Bible teaches. So you may say, well, we're, we're just liberal Christians. He's, no, you're not Christians because you're not holding to what the Scriptures teach. There was a, very, there was a struggle between the true church and the false church. What, what's going on? Is it, is it possible to just let go of these things and still find, declare oneself to be a true church? Well, that fight continues today. Today we have preachers and congregations proposing a new, what they call progressive Christianity. And progress is good. We want to progress. We want to move forward. But again, as I was stating a little earlier, if if by progress we mean getting rid of everything that we've from the past and starting new and redefining terms and setting new foundations, then we've got our into a situation where we are standing over against God's timeless truth and against God Himself. 
Peter Lilbeck, the president of Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, was on one of these podcasts that I was listening to, and he said, we have a new kind of liberalism, just like Machen's Day, 100 years later, a new kind of liberalism coming into the church. We have people in the church saying, we're not debating today whether the Bible is inspired. We're not debating whether Jesus is God or whether the resurrection of Jesus is true. What they're basically saying is, we've moved past that. (laughs) We're not even talking about that anymore. It goes on. We're not debating whether, or what we're debating is uh, the, the, the Bible's ethics. Are they applicable anymore? That's what they're saying. We're debating if the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality and gender is relevant in light of all of the new studies today. And then they say, we're all Christians. We're all, we're, we're all, we all hold to the theology that's found in, in God's Word. It just, we just have some questions about it. its, its ethical standard and, and, its, and, and the way the church ought to, to operate. What is the mission of the church? And, and Peter Lilbeck is, is arguing that, and I think he's right, that we have a new Christianity and liberalism. We have a new attack upon the Scriptures because that's what this is. Scriptures teach very clearly on what marriage is, on what sexuality is, what gender is. And though they've moved their attack to a different point, they're not talking, so we're not talking about how one is saved. We're not talking about uh, Jesus' divinity or his humanity. We're talking about ethics and how the church ought to function. While they've moved it over here, they've simply attacked the Bible from another angle. He said, does the, is the Bible really sufficient? Is it, does it really teach truth? We, we think the church can, can look at these things differently and, and not just look at them uh, differently, but act differently and live differently. But the true church upholds the Word of God no matter how unpopular it may be in the culture. Identifying the marks of the true church. Well, secondly, identifying the marks of the true believers. What does living in light of the whole counsel of God, the faith once for all entrusted to the saints that Jude is talking about, what does it look like in the members of the church? Here's what we have in our confessions. And we'll see in a moment how this comes from Scripture. We are looking for those in the true church. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith. At first off, true Christians appeal constantly to the blood and the suffering and death and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have the forgiveness of sins. There's no other way that we can be saved. Paul says it in, in Galatians chapter 6, again, as we're looking to see what does Scripture teach, Galatians 6, verse 14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, I'm not looking for the, the praise of men. I'm not looking for acceptance. I'm not looking for them to say, oh, Rabbi Paul has it all together. He's the one we want to follow. He's saying, I'm a fool for Christ. And he says, the foolishness of God is is greater than uh, man's wisdom. What he's saying is, I'm I'm, I'm following after, after Christ, no matter what the world says about me, for in God is the truth upon which my life is sustained. So that first off, how do we recognize Christians? By faith, by their faith, as they 
appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have forgiveness of their sins. And and all all that that means, why it was necessary for him to be God and man and so on. Secondly, conversion. He writes here, true Christians flee from sin and pursue righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit. I'm picking out those parts that refer to that second point of conversion. Listen to Paul again. This time, Philippians uh, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, he says that he is... He wants to know the power of Christ, the Christ's resurrection, to to be alive to God and to his teaching. And he says what that means then is this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And we could look at Romans 6 as well, where he says we've been buried with Christ and uh, in baptism, raised to newness of life. We won't do that, but Romans 6 is another passage where we're talking about what is conversion. It's, it's turning away from, from sin and, and turning toward God. The catechism uh, sets it out very clearly in questions and answers 88 to, to 90. Let's read those a moment to summarize what Scripture teaches, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate sin and run away from it. What is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ. And a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. That's distinguishing of true believers. Genuine holiness, because the believer is filled with the Holy Spirit and connected to the Holy Son of God. Third, love of God and neighbor. True Christians love the true God and their neighbors without turning, note, that's being stated here, without turning to the right or the left. Seeking holiness. Our love for God is formed by His gracious work in us, His rescue of us, the love of God to us in Christ compels us to tell others of His great love and the redemptive plan for sinners to call them out of sin, to call them away from that which is disobedient to God. And we can do this because we're not above others. It's not as though we've got some different origin. The Bible says our origin is the same. We're dead in sin. We can understand what it means to live performing the works of the flesh because we lived that way, and indeed we still fight against the works of the flesh. God's called you out. He's called me out to live for the Lord. It's not like we can't understand what that life is like. We can have compassion on those who still 
do not see the truth nor live according to it. The true church wants to reach out to those in this situation, even as Christ calls us to be his ambassadors. Well, then thirdly, identifying the marks of false confessors. I chose that word rather than the false church because I think it's, just, it's more helpful to me. I hope it is to you. How do we identify false confessors or the false church? First, it assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances than to the, work, or to the word of God. As a reminder of the power of the false church, it often appears very, very wealthy and very successful. We were just out in Idaho, and you see these Mormon temples and these, these Mormon churches. They're, they're, they're massive, and they're really uh, impressive. And you say, wow, you're tempted to say, there's got to be something there. There's got to be something that, that, that's, that's right about that. But it's a facade, a facade because there it's a it's a turning from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a following after the Book of Mormon and and their other uh, uh, their other literature, and there is nothing uh, in Church of uh, Latter Day Saints that we ought to look to and say, boy, that that really that might be another way. This is a situation or an illustration of one, of a. False church that assigns more authority to itself and its ordinances. But it can be closer to home. We can have it within our own. uh, That's what we call a cult. We can have it in our own circles where churches are adding things, subtracting things from the gospel. And we have to say, no, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we're saved. Another way of identifying a false church, false confessors, false church does not want to subject itself to the yoke of Christ. What did Jesus say when he came? He said he did not come to add more laws to God's word, but to fulfill the law of God, Matthew chapter 5. He calls us to believe in him for salvation. It's a call to love. There's a call to humbly serve others according to the law of the Lord, which is not burdensome, but invigorating and satisfying. John writes in 1 John 5, the law of the Lord is not burdensome, but it is enlightening. Thirdly, False church does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word. There are many false teachings surrounding the sacraments that they somehow infuse grace into us so that, such that we are righteous in ourselves, not an imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ <clears throat> credited to our account. There's a distinction to be made there that we must keep clear. There's other ways in which the sacraments are are taught falsely. We must look to what God's Word teaches concerning what the sacraments are pointing to. Fourthly, um, the the false church bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. I didn't finish that previous point. That's why I was hesitant. It does not administer the sacraments as Christ commanded in his word. It rather adds to them or subtracts from them as it pleases. And then fourthly, it bases itself on men more than on Jesus Christ. Makes salvation sometimes more about the preacher, the one who's in the pulpit, than what is being preached, we could say. But what does John the Baptist say when Jesus appears on the scene? He says what? 
I must increase and Christ must decrease? No, just the opposite. I must decrease, but he must increase. Our focus is upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to hear that truth about him again and again, regularly. Fifthly, false church persecutes those who live holy lives according to the word of God and who rebuke it for its faults, greed, and idolatry. We're not going to go back and talk about some of the, the uh, call of the, uh, of the true church, but there is a call there to, uh, to point out faults, the greed and idolatry of, of those who are living, uh, not living in keeping with the word of God. We're persecuted for that. History of the church has not been one of world dominance, but of persecution. The story of Christ was also a story of suffering and rejection. Numbers and recognition and splendor don't identify a true church. <clears throat> now, it's true. Smallness doesn't indicate necessarily a true church, but it is attendance to the Word of God which identifies the true church. A membership of humble uh, being sanctified sinners marks true church. As I close, I just want to make a a few comments. And speaking of the true and false church, I'm not saying that any church that doesn't practice their faith just as we do is therefore false. There are differences among denominations which don't establish a divide between true and false churches. The essentials of the faith, however, must be held while we can continue to work through differences on secondary matters. Speaking of the true church versus the false church, I'm not saying that the true church is made up of perfect people. We've arrived. We're there. Uh, and, and there's nothing more that, that we need to, to think about, to discuss, to pursue. You know, we saw that with Paul. He says, I press on. True church is made up of humble people who submit to God and His Word and want to submit to Him no matter how unpopular a standing for the truth may become in the world. So along with all of these things, there's, there's a, that you would pursue these things, there's also this call, and that is pray for this minister. That as I preach the Word, it might be faithful. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. Pray for husbands and wives singles among us, for children, that we would pursue the Word of God and want to know it more as we listen to God, as He speaks to us through His Word, as we live together. Now, that requires vigilance, for it is hardest to preach and to live the truth where the greatest opposition is being put up. We're taught to be to feel odd or we're, we're, we're to be convinced that you're odd, you're, you're out of touch. You, you, you really don't get it. And we must not let that sort of talk turn us away from pursuit of the truth. When the quote-unquote majority press for change in a particular area, we see how relentless they are. The public... Uh, what you want to call it, the mouthpiece of, of, of the society. It's just, it's relentless, this, this continual teaching of, well, this, is the, this is the new norm. This is the way things are. It's this, it's this, it's this. And whatever we believed in the past, that's all, that's all wrong. 
And we just, we just feel overwhelmed by it. And we think, well, maybe, maybe it's just go along. <laughs> Yet we can't do that. As Christians, we must, with all our spiritual strength, proclaim the truth, though it draws the attention of those who hate it. It's right at that point where the true church must be found. May God give us the grace to be such witnesses. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we think about the true church and, and how there's attacks from outside the church, from the world, attacks from the devil, we recognize there can be also attacks from within. There are those who call themselves the church who at the same time deny your word, the teaching found in your word, the authority that is there, and it is you speaking. Lord, I pray for these, your people, for myself, that we would humbly, yet boldly, search the truth, search out the truth, and that you would help us to understand it, to live it out, that you would forgive us when we are afraid or weak or silent. We pray that you would build up your church, that the church would remain strong and get stronger even in a day where truth seems to be changing. We know that that is not the case. Your word is eternal. Grant that we would be eternal people grounded upon it upon your word. By the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.